Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What if you found yourself 20 years ahead of a curve that no one saw coming? Could you imagine what working remotely full-time was 20 years ago? This is precisely where Kim Shepard was at the turn of 2000. A common theme with this podcast is discussing both the challenges and opportunities that life transitions can bring. Kim found herself in the middle of a life and career transition from being in broadcast journalism to business owner of a virtual recruiting business. Kim and I dive deep into three essential elements that make working remote possible. Effective communication that is disciplined, clearly identifying key performance indicators, and trust that you will get the job done. Please enjoy my conversation with Kim Shepard. So Kim, why don't you give our audience a little bit of background about who you are and this virtual company that you started before virtual was the thing it is now during COVID. Before remote was virtual. Right. <laughs> was remote. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I kind of have an odd background in that, you know, some people can't keep a job. I can't seem to keep a career. So I'm classically trained as a journalist and was a television reporter for 11 years and then um, decided to take a little break and became the worldwide director of entertainment for Club Med and then decided to get a job in corporate America and decided to become a recruiter to find myself a job in corporate America because I knew nothing about it because I was on Yahoo doing when I was a reporter, I was like, Mikey, Mikey will do it. Mikey will do anything, you know, let's go hang gliding, skydiving, you know, so Kim will do it. Um, and so I uh, entered the profession of recruitment and realized that, in my opinion, it was screwed up. It was structured wrong. The fees were too high. The process was inherently slowed down because of the big fees. Nobody was doing high volume recruitment. So I decided to create a company with my partner, Jay Barnett that um, does recruitment right for the right amount of money. So we ended up hiring about 95 stay-at-home moms. And in 2002, on the back of 9-11, that pandemic, nobody wanted to hire anybody. Everyone was frozen. I wanted to keep my people. So I decided to get rid of all expenses but people. And that turned me into a virtual company, you know, just by nature of getting rid of cubicles and company cars and server rooms and all that stuff. So back then I had no, there was barely Google. There was nowhere to go to find out what were other people doing. And so I was pretty much on my own, but got to dip into my old broadcaster, put my broadcaster hat on and figure out the story. And um, so ended up going virtual in 2002 to retain our people, retain, we retained all of them. Um, over the, the next 18 years, it would be ironic that I would have to talk against being virtual, saying we are a legitimate company. We have 100 employees in 34 states. 
We're in like four countries. We're legitimate. We're not a bunch of yahoos working from home. It's a virtual legitimate company. And people didn't know to trust it. And um, then in 2008, on the back of the, what I call the um, uh, stock market crash pandemic, uh, my co-writer of the new book we've got coming out called Remote Work, which comes out May 26th, I helped him take his company remote. And so at least he had somebody to toggle with and somebody who had stepped in landmines like myself and could help them navigate through them. And um, so sold Decision Toolbox, which was a recruitment firm two years ago, to a rewards and recognition company out of North Carolina called Engage to Excel. And, um, and I stayed with them for six months to transition my people. And then I technically retired. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that as our conversation goes along, because I know you, you're not really retired. <laughs> I um, missed the memo. <laughs> yes. So how did you... How did you get into recruiting? Like, how did you, how did you land from, from, how did you, because a lot of times I'm talking with people about life transitions and going from a broadcast journalist to owning your own recruiting company, it sounds like a pretty big life transition. <laughs> well, and you dropped club two years with Club Med. That's right. Middle entertainment director where, you know, you're, bar- you're barely clothed on some silly island, you know, teaching goofy dances and, and stuff like that. So that was a complete departure. Um, you know, it's funny because when I decided to become a recruiter, I didn't really spend a lot of time looking into it. And I ended up, I wanted to move to San Diego, California. And there was a company that was doing, um, uh, biochemical engineers and electrical engine, all things engineers. And they reached out to me and I took the job and I was on the job for literally 30 days. And I said, Hey, I'm pushing a boulder up a hill here because there's so many recruiters in this space and it's so quick for them to tell us no if we don't have something that differentiates us. But I have a girlfriend of mine who's an occupational therapist and everybody wants to hire her. Can I just kind of carve out this little office to the side of your organization and recruit occupational, physical and speech therapists? And it ended up that company had like 12 offices and I don't know, maybe 40 recruiters and ended up that my little therapy thing in the corner ended up doing more, generating more revenue than all of them combined. So my play here was why doesn't one of my clients steal me away, which is exactly what happened. They brought me to Laguna Beach. They gave me a senior vice president title. They said, we want you to hire therapists for our company. The more you hire, the more we grow. So I joined a $3 million company, grew it to a $100 million company in four years. Wow. And then they financed me to start up my own company. And while I was in limbo where you can't compete for a year, I stumbled across Decision Toolbox, which was doing about 700000 a year in top line revenue. But they had, they had, the, they had the, the sticks and bricks that I needed. They just didn't know what to do with them. So one year later, we went from 700,000 to 3.2 million. And then the next year we went virtual. So Decision Toolbox was, was already there when you, when you got brought into it. You said you mentioned you, have a, you had a partner there at the time. Yeah, he and his wife. So it was a, a mom and pop shop, um, just doing a nice, quiet little business, but doing it right. And they had the right um, heart, you know, and they had the right. I just felt right. And it was like this clay, like, get, let me get my hands on this clay because I can do something with this clay. 
And so I came in as originally sweat equity and then um, ended up paying off a bridge loan that was due and got more equity in the company and became the CEO. And then, and then we just started growing it. So was there, so with Decision Toolbox, were you recruiting for specific industries or types of people? No. So we were intentionally all across the board with a focus on if you need a lot of them. So if you're Northrop Grumman and you need a thousand aerospace engineers, use us. If you're the 99 cent store chain and you need 300 cashiers, use us. So we would just get that machine rolling. And, um, you know, we were, we were using stay at home moms, many of them making six figures and the, which worked great with a virtual model because it was, we had our key performance indicators set up strongly so that I know what you're doing. I don't care when you're doing it. I don't care how you're doing it. I don't care what you're wearing when you do it. I don't care if you're changing baby's diapers when you just get it done. And, and they did. And they were very appreciative of the compensation that was, was included. And the compensation varied on the better you were, the more money you made based entirely on your performance. So I had recruiters that were making $40,000 a year. They would pull themselves out of the company and go to work for my competition. It was beautiful. And the good ones that were making $160,000 a year stayed put. So this magnet eventually ended up attracting the best and the brightest and all the low hanging fruit went away. We didn't have to let them go. They just put themselves out. And then they went, and there were maybe over the years, a hundred of those people, they all went to work for my competition. So it was a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. <laughs> so when, when you kind of, I don't know if stumbled is the right word, but when, when you went to this virtual model, did you know, did you expect it to kind of blow up before it in a, in a positive way be, as it did? Cause like, I think of it now, I'm like, to me, like I come across a lot of a, a few companies that I've looked at uh, as far as like helping me with a virtual assistant. It seems like you were there, you know, 20 years ago before it was a thing. Right. Right. No, I had no idea if it would work. I did it with, you know, teeth and claws hanging onto a stick just hoping that I, at the time I had 37 people, I wanted to keep all 37. That was my goal. What can I strip away? I brought in an outside consultant that said, in order to do this, there's 21 things that you need to do on this list. And they were all painful. And we just went down and we did all 21 and we just stripped it away. And we kind of bumped along for maybe six months. We kind of had a on Wednesdays, let's all get together. And then people wanted to move to other locations. And then I would find talent in, you know, Atlanta. And, and that was a beautiful turning point when I realized I can now hire the best and the brightest anywhere in the world and they can move anywhere in the world and I'm not going to lose them. And that was tested about, oh gosh, 15 years ago, my director of marketing, her husband was from New Zealand and she called me up and she said, you know, I, I need to leave the company. I'm pregnant and my husband wants to move back to New Zealand. And I said, well, let me ask you two questions. One, do you want to leave Decision Toolbox? And she said, no. And I said, two, do you want to be a full-time mom? And she said, no. And I said, I have an office in New Zealand. <laughs> and that's how, and then I ended up, my uh, chief uh, mark, uh, my chief business development officer, he and his wife moved to Paris for six months, fine. 
My uh, chief technical officer fell in love with a woman in Poland. Fine. And so it was wonderful because we could keep it. I didn't care where you were. And accidentally it ended up that we had all, we had a manager, a senior level person living in all time zones. Nice. So that, so that worked out well. It was total accident. <laughs> so when, how did, how did people find you? Like you mentioned like an example of like North Rip Grumman or, you know, a big chain that needed, you know, cashiers. Like how did these companies find decision toolbox? Like, how did they know about you? Well, I was everywhere. <laughs> I mean, I was writing every article, giving every speech, you know, building our, our, um, our uh, sales department and coming in and closing the deals. And, and the way I would really close the deal is I would, you know, I would tell them a little bit about the company and I would say, listen, if you look at what I've built, I've built a common sense, practical company at the right price and the right speed, because it's the right thing to do. So with that being said, you want to work with my type of company. So now if it's just a matter of fact of can we fulfill what it is you need, here are examples of other, you know, industries, locations, it didn't matter, that we've done as well. And, and then I would say that they would inevitably say, well, what's this going to cost me? And I would always say, I don't know yet. I don't know what your problem is. Let's back into your problem. And then I'll give you, I, I'm not taking something off the shelf and plugging and playing. I want to find out where the chinks in your armor are. What are your strengths? You know, let's do a true SWOT analysis. And then I come back into the pricing, but I know you'll like the pricing because it will be lower than you're expecting it to be because we're built on that low cost, high volume model. And it, and it just selling by sharing and really wanting to solve a problem just got us a lot of business. And we were the good guys. <laughs> well, that sounds like, again, you were kind of ahead of your, ahead of your time because when, when I think of Tama and what I do and what business consultants do, if, if you will, today, it's a lot of, I share a lot of information. This podcast is a great example of it. You know, having great people like you on to tell your story and sharing that experience and helping educate people, you, you never know where that spark's going to come from or like, oh yeah, that's, I need to reach out to that person. They, they could really help me. So this whole sharing by, you know, selling by sharing or caring by sharing environment. Um, again, it, it seems like you're <laughs> well ahead of the time, whether you realize it or not. Thank you. Well, and also, you know, being being the helm of the company, I could get away with a lot. And my, I really believed my customer were my employees. Our clients were their customers, but my customers, my people, period. And if I treat my people right, then they treat the customers right. Conversely on that, every once in a while, you, you come across a fraud that you just do not want to kiss in a client. And uh, like we had one time, I, I had brought in this um, bikini maker company, bathing suit company, and I thought it was just this great client. They were local, and you know they have a sexy product, and I love them, and I and I liked the CEO, and and I happened to be catch wind in one of the like our virtual water cooler that we had that nobody wanted to work with this client. So I got everybody together virtually, and I said, "Why is that?" 
And they were all like, she's mean and they're awful. And she beats us up and calls us names and, and all this stuff. I had no idea. And, and it was universal. Nobody wanted to work with this client because this was a bad, mean client. So I called the, the CEO up, a woman, and, and I went and I met with her. And, um, and now with, those, with that, at the rose-colored glasses are off and I'm really looking at her, I'm saying, oh, you possibly have a lot of B potential in you. <laughs> and um, so I said to her, and once I got wind of that, I said, um, do you watch the television show Survivor? And she says, yes, I've seen it. And I said, well, then you're aware of the Survivor Immunity Challenge where we vote someone off the island. We have decided to vote you off our island. And she's like, are you firing me as a client? I said, I absolutely am. You're mean to my people. I don't want to work with you anymore. And she goes, I owe you whatever it was, $136,000. You'll never see a penny of that. And I said, well, I own a recruitment company. And if you don't pay, you won't have any employees on Monday because I can place them with nicer people. And she wrote the check and had me sign a document that I wouldn't touch her people. And I mean, I, we, we could have gutted her company. Um, so anyway, so the, the point is, is, you know, you, you have to be brave enough to fire the icky ones. You know, if the, I don't want my people dealing with somebody that's mean to them. So let's, let me, let me circle back on one thing that you had, kind of touched on before about doing recruiting the right way. Cause you know, I, I work with a lot of people that are in career transition and I know this is not the type of recruiting that you do, but one of the things that they get, people often get fr frustrated about their in transition and dealing with recruiters is, you know, they don't call back. Um, they're not very timely. Um, you know, the, the job might not be as what it's, you know, sketched out to be talk to us about things that you've seen how how you've readdressed those when it comes to recruiting and and helping people yeah yeah how it yeah. should be like helping people generally getting in them in the right spot that's good for them and for the company yeah so the first thing that we would always do is we would write a really expanded job description on the position with what it's like to work in the company, the culture, the, I mean, it would, if it was printed, it would be seven, eight pages long of real stuff, not, you know, ability to speak at an elevated level when gets well along with others, but like real, what the job really is and what, what they really want from you, what you can expect from them. And then we would encourage when, when interviews were set up, first of all, everybody had to be touched every 24 hours in some way we're not proceeding with you or you're still in the queue. We'll get there. But they had to be touched every 24 hours in some way, even if it's a text, it's an email, whatever, so that they know exactly where they're at. Then we give them real information on the position. And then we encourage them during the interview process to ask questions because we say, it is a me ink world. You are a commodity. You're selecting this job just like they're selecting you. So go into it like you're doing a job interview on them. And we would encourage that. And it was that exchange of real information back and forth, which it should be, that set everything up in a really good way to begin with. Because now we're building trust. We're building two-way communication. We're making it okay for the candidate to ask you know, the, the hiring manager what they want to be when they grow up. 
you know, what does your career path look like? It was opening up. So when, when a hire was actually made, that form of communication was already established, which put our candidate and our client in a better seat right out of the gate. And then we would work with the client every step of the way on the onboarding of that candidate. Like it was never okay. If, if I hire you and you're going to start with me two weeks from today, you will already have all that healthcare information sent to you electronically, filled out at your leisure, sent back to me because I'm not going to waste your first day of work doing stupid paperwork. <laughs> and you're going to have, you're going to be touched by the CEO or someone very elevated above, above you. You're going to have a game plan of exactly what's going to happen the first five days of your work. If, it, if you're virtual, there's going to be a knock at the door at noontime on your first day with my company, with Decision Toolbox. Lunch is going to be delivered, and you and your virtual boss is going to eat lunch together, just like if I could take you out to lunch. This is all going to happen with onboarding because onboarding is so critical because here's what it says. It's, it's way more than your first day of work. <laughs> the way I onboarded my people is I gave them, I sent them all two weeks we hire them before they start their internet's up, their phone's up. They have business cards sent to them. They would get a, a fortune cookie from me about the size of a football with this little fortune that came out that said, we predict a bright future for you at decision toolbox. Now, why was it so big? Because I didn't want them to eat it. I wanted it to sit on their desk and remind them how cool this thing was. And <laughs> so then by me having their first five days heavily structured and lunch coming and they're eating with their boss and, and all of this stuff and, and a, a question and answer period designed within the context of the first day of work and all of that stuff, it says to the candidate, I respect your time. So day one, you respect my time. Because what usually happens, and it's unfortunate, is I start a new job with you and I'm lost and in the weeds for the first week. Nothing really happened. The first day I filled out HR paperwork. The second day I found where the restroom and the pencils are kept, you know, and it just, it's, and, and, and so what that says from the company is I don't respect your time and I don't expect you to, re to respect mine. Yeah. It's, and I, I think, especially like in a virtual setting, you know, you talk about like that one week not being very productive it would be even worse from a virtual standpoint because what are you doing? Like without any yeah. direction or guidance. Right, right, exactly. But with, a, with a, a remote platform, it's really cool because all it does is it doesn't take any more out of you. If so many hiring authorities, they hire you and then on day one, it's like, you know what? We meant to get your internet up, but the IT's working on it. And, and the phone line, like, probably by tomorrow lunchtime, that'll be up. Your business cards are ordered. You'll get those in about two weeks. Here's some paperwork. Da, 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 da. You have to do all this stuff anyway. It's not like it's, it's more work. So why not do it before they start work and make yourself look really, really good and set the parameters of the work ethic that you expect from, from that, that uh, employee? So let's let's start pivoting into I think topics that are going to reflect um, your new book uh, that I want to get into, but let's just start with now that we're in a, this more virtual work world, um, and I see it with 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 my wife Teresa is the how the forms of communication change working remotely versus working in person. Can you kind of elaborate? 
on that as far as what people need to know, what they, what should what should they be aware of, given that they're not you know face to face with somebody like they they're used to, and maybe it's a Zoom like you know you know we're doing right now, we can see each other, and and how that those communication styles can vary, and and how to be. I guess, prepared for the change. Sure. Okay. So actually you hit the nail on the head. The whole thing with effective virtual remote operations is communication. And you set out clear communication and you have to be anal on this topic where if you start a meeting at 11 o'clock, it does not start at 1101. It starts at 11. And if it is to end at 1145, it does not end at 1146. You must be disciplined. So your forms of, and, and you have to determine which kinds of meetings are the most appropriate. The thing that we've gotten into with Zoom that's a, that's a bit of a trap is what could happen with a phone call. We automatically Zoom now because we Zoom because that's what we do and that's what we do. But we don't stop to think is Zoom the most effective method for this particular call? And the reason I say that it's just like the you know, sticks and bricks operation where time is wasted, where I go stand in your front door and like, how was your weekend? And, blah, blah, blah. and it's, and it's great to have that, but then I go stand in the next door and then, you know, pretty soon my work day, I'm, I'm an hour and a half in, I'm getting my coffee and I went to the water cooler and somebody had a new hairdo and isn't that cool? And it, it, we do, we fall into that same trap with Zoom where if you and I needed a 10 minute phone call and we just did a phone call, it would only be 10 minutes long. If we did a Zoom call, I'm going to comment on your jacket and your haircut and, you know, like that background you've got going on and, and we're going to make small talk and that 10 minute call is going to end up being 25 minutes long. So you need to determine what kinds of meetings that you need to have. There's informational meetings. There's tiger team meetings that I call where you're, where you're chewing on a topic and solving a problem, which I call killing cockroaches. It's a cockroach killing phone call. There's tsunami planning where you're planning, and this is all in the book, where you're planning stuff that scenarios that haven't happened yet, but could. What if Paul gets hit by a bus? What happens to Tama? You know, the, those are the, so that's tsunami planning. You see the tsunami may or may not hit you, but you're going to plan for it anyway. There's about 15 different kinds of meetings that in, in the book that you can go to and say, this is the appropriate meeting and then, then did you have a question in that? I did. Yeah. See, this is why I like Zoom, yeah, when we're yeah, doing yeah, things, yeah. even or though it's, it's a podcast, because you can see me and, and you know, I'm, I'm like, wait one second. Can, <laughs> I want to know what's this killing the cockroach? <laughs> okay. So in recruitment, um, I would have my team put in pods, virtual pods of three or four people. And they intentionally were in different geographies specializing in different things. I didn't want them to be clustered because they all happen to recruit nurses, you know, or recruit IT. I would put an IT recruiter with a sales recruiter with maybe someone from my IT team or whatever. And their job, they would get together on a pod call. It was a bonding experience. And back then it was Skype before we had Zoom. And they would come together and someone would say, I've got a cockroach. And a cockroach in recruiting would be a position I just can't fill. I'm doing everything right. I've, I've scrambled my brain. I cannot get this position filled. And the other cockroach hunters would come in and go, did you try this? How about that? One time I did this and that happened. And all of a sudden, they help kill your cockroach. <laughs> and we all have cockroaches. 
That is, that is, that is awesome. That is, and awesome. they would have to start the pod call so that they wouldn't blow eight minutes of cockroach time. They all had to chant. And I swear to God, they had to chant. We are here to kill a cockroach. And that's how the meeting started. We are here to kill a cockroach. And how did you come up with that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've got a lot of that. They call them Kimisms. Okay. <laughs> so, so we've talked a little bit about communication and, and how that, I think the key there, as I noted, as I just started down to be effective, you have to be disciplined because you can lose that discipline, whether you were in the office or doing these, these zooms, which, you know, could be a phone call. And I've, I've read that, you know, before in a number of pieces, but when, when people should people be concerned about performance and how they are valued when they're working remotely. Okay. So that is the second leg of the stool. The first is communication and the second is performance indicators. So you have to clearly determine what you want from your person, from that person, that team, that department, whatever it is, clearly focus on what it is and then set key performance indicators, KPIs that those people need to set. And it's so important. It's a two-way street. Your remote workers need to know exactly what they're marching towards and why. And the leader has to know exactly when to celebrate their success by looking at the performance that's expected. Not how they got there, but that they did get there. So it's really important that you set your KPIs. What happens when like, the manager doesn't know and the employees just kind of, for lack of a better term, wallowing? Yeah. Um, then that's what you're going to get back and you're going to attract C players and have a nice day. And I don't really care about you. Sorry. Okay. I'm focused and I don't mean to be so I'm focused on the companies that want to do the right thing for the right reasons that, you know, that they go, Oh my God, the more disciplined I am, the more disciplined they are, the more, the the more clarity I have on when you are successful, the more successful you're going to be. And then the third stool the, the third leg of that stool is trust. So you put the right communication tools in place. You have clear delineation of what's expected of you. And then you trust that they're going to get there. And that's when we've all heard the saying, hire slowly and fire quickly. Um, And that's what you have to do. Put all of your trust in them until you can't and then cut them. But don't dole the trust out, not, not in a remote environment, because you're not seeing what they're doing. You're just seeing what they're producing. Right. And that is that's the that's the, the playing field we're on now. So um, you need to trust them explicitly until they prove you wrong. You know, you have decades of experience, you know, doing this now, and I'm sure you've see, you've read research. You know, I I I try to keep up on on this as well. Is are people that work remote more um, effective? more productive. Productive is the word I wanted to use. Are they more productive versus somebody that's, you know, in an office type environment? Well, it depends what you're expected from them. If you're, if they're what I call hamster wheel people that just need to move the hamster wheel, hamster wheel, hamster wheel, doesn't matter where they are. They're just moving the hamster wheel. Um, if they're, you know, there's a whole bunch of people. If you're making wine, you need to be in the vineyard. If you're making jets, you need to be in the hangar, right? But if you're making internet, you can be anywhere, um, you know. And, and so I want to touch on something um, 
that I'm, I'm answering your question in kind of a circular way. I hire Jedis. What's a Jedi? You and I are Jedis. Anybody that logged onto this podcast, they don't have to. They did. They are probably a Jedi. I like Jedi instead of a player because a player means you were really good at your last job or your current job. Doesn't tell me you're a Jedi. Doesn't tell me if I put you over there, if I put a Jedi over there, they're going to make it happen. If I put an A play over there, they could become a C player. I don't know. Jedis were Jedis at age five, age 12, age 22, age 32. Jedis are Jedis. If I hire a Jedi and I don't have the productivity nailed or I, or I slough off on my communication or I display something that's not completely trustworthy, a Jedi is going to correct me. Je and then when you have a team of Jedis, it's a beautiful thing. And there's a gazillion Jedi. So to answer your question about who works, I think your question, who works well in a remote environment? Jedis do. And if your company is not prepared to have a remote, a strong remote element for your Jedis, your competition's going to get them. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I, I won't name the company, but back in my, my corporate career, um, I tried to be really proactive with allowing um, people to work from home. And it didn't sit well with the C-level management team that I worked with. But I, I, looked, I, I took an angle where, okay, I've got a third of my people that are working moms I've got a third of my people that have like an hour commute into this office and they, they work, they, they worked around the clock to begin with anyways. And I'm like, why, why do they need to be here? I mean, this is not that long ago. This is like five, six years ago. And if I can save them, if I can help them not have to drive an hour each way. So two hours on the road or to where they could, you know, get to their kids' soccer game or get their you know daughters to dance class or whatever it may be, I always thought that that was going to make them uh, more productive and because they were going they were a Jedi. They were going to get the job done no matter what. But sometimes as a, as a manager, my hands were handcuffed as, as far as like how much could I really give to a person besides like their 3% merit increase. And I saw the ability to be flexible and to give flexibility as a, as a bonus, as a, um, uh, as a trust builder between them and me, knowing that we were going to work together um, and, and have this um, camaraderie and this communication where we had trust and that's what it came down to. Um, so it's, it's funny, this, this whole COVID thing has really flipped this whole, I think, remote working from home on its head, because I know that a lot of the people that I've worked with, I see it firsthand with my wife, Teresa, people have worked harder and longer hours through oh. COVID than they did pre-COVID. And I got, I, I probably got 20 to 25% increased productivity out of my team because we were remote. The two hours that they're not commuting, guess what they're doing? Working. The hour that I'm not putting on mascara and looking pretty, guess what I'm doing? Working. You know, the, the, the time you're not shaving your legs, we're working. That's, that's what happens. And that's what Jedis do. You know, what's, what's interesting is back when I went remote, 
And, uh, you know, I, I had mentioned that that I had to convince people we were a legitimate company, even though we were virtual. And, you know, some people just didn't believe us. Now it's so lovely 20 years later for me to look and go, guess what? If you don't go remote or what for whatever piece can go remote, if you don't do it, fall in love with C players because that's what you're going to get. That's what you're going to get because your competition is going to eat up the talent because the talent wants to work from home or the talent wants to work wherever talent wants to work. And you should be able to say, okay, you want to abide, you know, your Monday and Friday, you're at home and then you're in the, whatever you want to a Jedi, you say you design the environment where you will be the most productive and all back it up. Now you get up, we still get a lot. And in my book, which by the way, I started writing in November of 2019 before COVID and Whoa, we got the actual title. The book is called Remote Work. <laughs> like, nailed that. And nailed that. And then this whole thing happened and everybody went remote without any structure or whatever, without any planning. Just go home. Go home. We'll figure it out. Now they're going to start bringing people back and they don't know what the heck to do with them. So I have a whole chapter in the book for the naysayers. Well, you know, if I can't see them, I can't manage them, you know. If, uh, you know, if, if I can't, if I can't walk into their office, how am I going to be able to free flow on ideas? Like, oh, you better figure it out. And so actually, I, I, that's where I wanted to go next was to talk. I know, talk a little bit more about the book. Um, I think we've hit the three key stools that you wanted to talk about. So communication, performance, and trust. But is there anything else that, that you think the audience should know about, you know, from the book and any, any Bites. life hacks, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Well, the main one, forget the stools, the actual stool is something that my business partner and I created back in 2000, when we, or 2002, when we were going remote, we set our motto and our motto goes like this, design what you want or deal with what you get. And that is design what you want or deal with what you get. And so everything that you do when creating or enhancing your remote posture has got to be by design. Your corporate culture, you have in a remote environment, you've got this clay to mold that is really, really yummy because you got more to play with but by creating, you know, virtual water coolers and you know, ugly sweater t-shirt contests and, you know, all of, all of these things define what your cult, what you want your culture to be, because every company has a culture. Here's the difference. It's either designed by you or for you. <laughs> and you don't want the latter. You do not want the culture designed for you. And culture, which used to be considered a really squishy thing is a very simple thing. Here's my definition of culture. How do you feel? That's it. That's the culture. How do I feel when I think of my company? How do I feel when I wake up in the morning? How do I feel about you? How do I feel? That is your culture. And it's as simple as that. So how do you want them to feel? Like I wanted my people, my company, I wanted, it was an ego-based company. I wanted to win every award for best boss, bitching employers, best place to work, workplace flexibility. I, I wanted to win all of those awards because if I did, I succeeded in doing that. I wanted the company that drank the Kool-Aid, 
We sat around our virtual campfire and said, kumbaya, and we had a big love fest. That's what I wanted to build. That's how I wanted everyone to feel. And we got there. That's, that's amazing. So I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. So I want to, I want to at least say the, the book, uh, it's called Remote Work um, by Kim Shepard and Chris Dyer, right? Is that how you say Chris's last name? Okay. And so when does that come out? May 26th. Okay. And where's the best place to get that? Is that like on, you know, Amazon or, okay. So we'll put a link to that um, in our show notes. And then Kim, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Is it, I know you're big on LinkedIn, um, like I am as well, but is that, is that usually a, a good source for people to reach out to you? They can go LinkedIn or they can go right to my email address. Okay. Which is? It's Kim at Kim-Shepherd, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D.com. Okay. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So I've kind of primed you for this, this last question, which is one that I, I ask all my guests. You're a little different because you don't have kids. And, and a lot of this, this podcast has turned out to be uh, more life planning than, than wealth planning. Um, but spoiler alert, there's going to be a new series on that's a little bit more focused on wealth planning. But <laughs> the closing question I have for all my guests is, what is the thing that you like most about being a parent? And I know that you don't have kids, but I do know that you are a very proud aunt. So yeah. what is the best thing about being an aunt? <laughs> well, you know what? This is going to sound a little trite, but I have taught my two nieces and my nephew 19, 22, and 25 years old to fundamentally and always design what they want so they don't deal with what they get. And that is the best advice other than teaching them all how to eat sushi at age six. That's the best advice I can give them. Well, Kim, I think that's a perfect way to to, uh, wrap up our conversation. Um, again, the book is called Remote Work. We'll we'll put a link to it in our in our show notes. Um, I think it'd definitely be worth um, everybody's time to to check that out and to uh, check out Kim's work. Um, uh, definitely a pioneer in the uh, field of remote working for sure. So, Kim, I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast today. Well, thank you so much. I had a blast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.